The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening. How are you guys? Another beautiful Wednesday night. I'm loving these uh, like cool evenings and sunny days. This is probably one of my favorite times of the year. Hey, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 22. That'll be our launching point this evening. We are now in our fourth week of our series, Live Like Jesus. Now to this point, we've been asking, what does it look to live like Jesus? Well, what does it look to, to, to walk in the same example that he set forth as it relates to different areas of life? We asked the first week, well, how do we disciple like Jesus? And then Sam walked us through what it means to teach like Jesus the second week. In week three, last week, Pastor Jeff taught us what it means to pray like Jesus. And this week, tonight, we're going to ask, how is it that we relate like Jesus? How do we do relationships like Jesus did? So before we dive into that, would you bow your heads in a word of prayer as we come to the Lord with our hearts. Father, represented in this room tonight are people that long to follow in your footsteps, to be like you. They've set aside time this evening in the midst of busy schedules and running kids around and everything else, to come and, and listen to your word, that they might receive instruction, Lord, and be refreshed in the knowledge of how you conducted yourself while you were here. So God, would you speak? Would you give guidance? Lord, I pray that there would be... be clarity that is brought to the relationships that are already existing in their lives. Lord, that you would help them to spot any inconsistencies so that they can be aligned with your will and your heart for those relationships. Help them to know by the end of tonight what relationships also, Lord, that they may be pouring themselves into that are not your heart, not your desire, not your will. So God, through the example of your Son, Bring to bear the truth of what it means to relate to others, just like Jesus did. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When it comes to relationships, it's often tricky for us as Christians. It's difficult to try and navigate the waters of of both being loving and also not being taken advantage of. We wrestle with knowing how to love and how to, be, how to be friendly with people and how to be friendly really with all. And yet at the same time, how do we maintain friendships? How is it that we, we, we love everyone but love specifically a few? 
How do we make those distinctions? Where do we draw the lines? What does that actually look like? How do we minister to others? And yet love people genuinely without making them our project. You know what I mean by that? Like the person who automatically insert themse- inserts themselves in a, in a place of superiority and, and basically says, hey, you know, the Lord has called me into your life to help you, to make you a better person or a better version of who you are. And, and, and you can't have a friendship with somebody like that, can you? You can't. There has to be equal and measured love. So how, how is it that we do this thing? How did Jesus build relationships? Well, since we believe that no one does life better than Jesus, I think it's important for us to take this close and careful look at how Jesus ordered and cared for the relationships in his life. And we're going to look, really, at three specific areas, three principles for relating like Jesus The first one is that Jesus prioritized his relationships. The first thing we're going to talk about is that Jesus prioritized his relationships. The second thing is that Jesus pursued the deepest relationships. He he prioritized his relationships, and the ones that were the deepest, the most important, the most vital, those are the ones where he really put energy and investment and pursued those relationships. And then thirdly, Jesus protected his vital relationships. He was protective of his vital relationships. So those are the three things we're going to be exploring. They kind of all have subpoints, but for those of you who are note takers, I, I would uh, suggest you write those three down as sort of uh, headings, and we'll, we'll begin to sort of build logic underneath of that. So Matthew chapter 22, that's our launching point this evening. We're going to pick it up in verse 34, where Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, who was a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now, briefly, lawyers were experts on the minutia of the law. It was their specialty to really discern exactly what God had said so that they could keep the command of God perfectly. They were experts at understanding the Old Testament. And so this lawyer asks a question. And what's the intent behind it? The intent really is to test Jesus. He has an agenda. Teacher, what is the great commandment? In the law. And Jesus responds. And he said to him. You shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart. And with all your soul. And with all your mind. First. And great commandment. Love God. He says in verse 38. This is the great and first commandment. In verse 39. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Everything that the prophets wanted you to do, everything that God was trying to help push you towards in the law, in the commands of Scripture, were aimed at these two purposes. 
The very first one in priority is a love for God. Now, this passage demonstrates that Jesus set some priorities for relationships in his life. There is a primary relationship towards God the Father and a secondary relationship towards humanity. Jesus emphatically says, this is the great and first commandment. First priority. Relationship with God. Now, now this, this makes sense, doesn't it? Because we all know that as we relate to God and as we love God, he begins to work in our hearts. And the love that flows from us through his love flowing into us is a love like his love. So it makes sense. God comes first above all other relationships. Now, this same idea is affirmed in Scripture again when at the age of 12, you guys remember the story, Jesus is in the temple. And he's been missing for a few days and his parents have been looking for him. Finally, they find him in the temple and he's, he's reasoning with the people inside of the temple, asking questions and then also giving them answers and they're amazed by his wisdom. And his mom pulls him aside and, and rebukes him like, hey, what, what about us? Don't you know? Your father and I have been sick. Now think about like a good Jewish mom, right? Like the emphasis that she would say this. What's going on? I thought you loved us, right? That's basically kind of the question that is happening here. And he says, didn't you know that I should be about my father's business? In other words, there's a priority here. There's something that's important here. And that's my relationship with the Father. Jesus' relationship with the Father always came first. Now that might seem a little bit like a no-brainer. The messiness for us really comes in in the second part of that commandment, doesn't it? And loving your neighbor like yourself. You see, relationships with God it's somewhat easy to navigate because you have one half of the relationship that's perfect, right? Relationships with people are messy and not easy to manage. And as a result, they get complex. How do we order our human relationships in such a way that we can fulfill the heart of Jesus and the commands of Scripture. How do we do that? And when it comes to human relationships, the Bible gives us some clues on how to order them. We see it in the example of Jesus, but we also see it, again, affirmed throughout Scripture in various places. First, underneath of the primary relationship of our relationship with God, the next relationship in priority in order is marriage and immediate family marriage and immediate family we see this in jesus in that he was committed to the church which was his bride first and foremost as a matter of fact you you could say that the bride of christ was the single most important pursuit of his entire life it's where he poured his energy his lifeblood it was the purpose for which he lived. 
the purpose for which he died. It's something that John the Baptist referred to right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. You see, here's what was happening. John was preaching and he was continuing to gather disciples. And then there came a moment where all of the disciples began to leave John the Baptist and began to follow Jesus. And so some of the disciples are upset by this. Like, hey, hey, this guy's more popular than you are. Your disciples aren't very faithful. They're going over with this guy. And, and John looks at them and he says this in John chapter 3, verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him, hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You see, Jesus cared first and foremost underneath of his relationship with his father for his bride. Again, in other places, we're told that Jesus referred to the relationship with his people as that of a bridegroom and a bride. This comes up in the question about fasting. Early in the Gospels, where Jesus responds to the Pharisees when questioned that the bride uh, will not mourn. You know, the Pharisees that come to Jesus, they say, hey, how come your, your disciples don't fast like the disciples of the Pharisees? What's going on there? And he says, hey, listen. Why would they need to mourn when the bridegroom is with them? Why should, now, when the bridegroom departs, they will fast. They will mourn. But while he's with them, the party's on, right? Joy is complete. Why do you need to draw near to the one who is in your presence, in your midst? That's the point of fasting, to draw near, right? Well, he says, when the bridegroom is with the bride, there's no need for that. No need for fasting. And so, again and again, this comes up. This comes up in the parables where Jesus pictures himself as a, as a groom coming for his bride. It comes up at the, the book of Revelation and when Christ gathers his church and the very first celebration is the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. He lived and died for his bride in priority above other relationships. So, to the married, there is this principle that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible that marriage is held first in priority. It is affirmed when we're told in Ephesians 5 to emulate the kind of love that Christ has for the church. We learn how to love and how to be married by looking at the way that Jesus prioritized and ordered his life and caring for his spouse, his bride, his beloved. It's affirmed when we're told in various places of instruction about marriage in Colossians and Peter and others. And in the teaching of Jesus where he says that what God has joined together, let not man separate. So no other relationship takes priority over this one. This one is supposed to be indivisible. This one takes precedence. Over all the other relationships, it's unique and has priority above the others. It's affirmed in the view that the apostles took of marriage. When one of them wrote in the book of Hebrews that marriage is to be held in honor by all. And that that was instruction for the church. 
As a side note, I have heard it said in some circles, and there's ministry circles that I have been in, and from the pulpit where I've heard great men of God who I, I deeply love and respect say really horrible, horrible things. Say things like, if you, pastors, take care of God's family, he will take care of yours. And that was a way of them saying, um, what you should do is, you know, put ministry first and not worry so much about your family and not worry so much about your own kids. If you take care of God's family, he'll take care of yours. And I just want you to know that is the biggest bunch of baloney I've ever heard in my life. It's awful and it's terrible what it does to men of God that desire to serve and love him and follow him. As a matter of fact, the New Testament goes on to say in Timothy that one of the qualifications that enables you to begin to minister to the body of Christ and to love on the body of Christ in that way is that your family is loved and cared for first. You see, there's a priority there. God, marriage and family, immediate family, right there. It's the next one. Now, some of you are in here going, well, that's great, but I'm not married. <laughs> so what do I do with that? I, I, I don't have that same sense of here's God and then comes husband or, or, or kids. I'm, I'm, I'm a single person or maybe I'm a single dad or a single mom. What, what, what do I do with that? Well, again, Jesus is still the example, isn't he? Even though Jesus was single and unmarried his whole life, in his ultimate, uh, excuse me, in that his ultimate desire for being loved was found first in his primary relationship with God, he then devoted himself to loving those in the kingdom of God. And for single people, again, Jesus sets the standard on how to order in priority those relationships. His ultimate desire for being loved was found in his love from his father and his commitment to serving his father in the church. His priority then was that one particular relationship that began to overflow into the other relationships in his life. Now, underneath of that, okay, so we've got God up here. What comes next? Marriage. What comes after that? What's the next layer? I would say it's family of origin. It's your family of origin. Well, it is true that your family of origin and friendships are often elevated to the the same level of care in society, the Bible places a high premium on the care of our elders and specifically our parents. Jesus demonstrated his care for his family of origin in his final moments at the cross where he makes sure that his mother is cared for. He calls out one of the seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross was a command that John the Apostle would care for his mother in his absence. In other words, he took seriously the command that was a part of the Ten Commandments. The fifth command, you guys remember what that was? Which, by the way, if you don't know the sign language for that, the fifth command is honor your father and your mother, right? That's the fifth command. 
But here, here, this was the retirement system. When your parents were old enough, they could no longer care for themselves. That responsibility fell on you. Why? Because they had cared for you when you could not care for yourself. And, and God lays the responsibility of caring for our parents upon us as children. Now, let me throw out a couple of things. Some parents... having been tied to sin, having been made dysfunctional in their relationships, make this an especially hard job to do. And those relationships can be messy and complicated. Here's what I would say. You can love and care for your parents without being manipulated by them. And there's a very fine line there but it's one we all have to exercise. We can say, Mom and Dad, I love you, and I care about you, and it's my job to take care of you, and I take that job seriously. This is a command of God. This is one of the Ten Commandments. And yet at the same time, even though I am responsible to you, I am not responsible for you. The choices you make, the, the decisions that you make, I don't bear response. You still are accountable to God for what you choose. So whether you're a believer or unbeliever, whether you're healthy or unhealthy, your choices are yours to own. And that doesn't mean that I won't, there won't be ongoing consequences in our relationship of barriers that I have to put in place so you don't hurt me or my family. But I can still honor you and I can still care for you with limits and I can be loving and fulfilling the word of God in doing so so family of origin comes next then friendships now there's lots of people who follow Jesus around they they believed his teaching and were invested in his kingdom but among them his friends Jesus's friends were first. Jesus loved his friends. He spent most of his time with his friends. He allowed them access to his struggles, like in the Garden of Gethsemane or at the tomb of Lazarus. He shared his truest identity with them, the deepest parts of who he was at the Mount of Transfiguration where they got to see his divinity come shining through. They saw him weep at the tomb of Lazarus and on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. They saw his care for others and his specific care for them. They, they shared meals, activities, vacations at the beach and the Sea of Galilee. They worked together, ministered together, suffered together, and stood together. He cared about their families. Like when Peter's mother-in-law was sick and he made it a point to stop by her house and heal her. He cared about their families. Jesus was a great friend. Now his friendships didn't take away from his relationship with the, with the Father. Nor did they replace his love for his bride. Or his commitment to his family of origin. But his friendships were in addition to those very important relationships. His friendships were vital 
in his life, and he placed priority on them above the crowds, above the masses, above the groups that followed and thronged around him. He placed priority on those relationships first. He poured more into his friendships than he he did the rest of believers that followed Jesus around. He cared for them uniquely. And this is demonstrated all throughout the Gospels. You see it again and again, Jesus withdrawing with his disciples and placing priority on those friendships. The next layer down, the crowds. The crowds. Now, the people that followed Jesus were loved and cared for by Jesus as well. He, He taught them. He protected them from hunger and false teaching. And the judgment of the religious, he cared about their sicknesses and their weaknesses, their sorrows. He cared about their souls. You know, there were limits, though. Jesus did not care for or invest his time and energy in the same way to the crowds that he did to his friends. He did it differently. He managed those relationships differently. They took a lower rung on the ladder, if you will. That doesn't mean he didn't care for the crowds. Just when it came to his investment, his time, his energy, he reserved the most important investments for a few people rather than giving it away to the masses. Jesus did not care for or invest his time and energy in the same way to the crowds as he did to his friends. Now listen, every Sunday, there is a crowd of people that gather as Jesus' followers. Every Sunday, you and I are, 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 are gathered together. And Wednesday nights, here we are. There's you know, 80 to 100 of us gathered here in this room. Now part of me, the idealistic part of me says, we could just all be friends. It could be like this really happy hippie commune where we just love each other and we make meals together and share all of life together. But listen, you and I both know We cannot split our attention or our affection that many directions. It's impossible. And we would absolutely devastate ourselves and exhaust ourselves if we tried. We can't. That means at some level, there will be this philosophy that we have to adopt that we will be loving and friendly to all but friends with few. We will serve as many as we possibly can, but serve uniquely our friends. We will love the masses and long for God's will in their lives, but we will fight for God's will in the lives of our friends. It's different. It's different. Jesus cared for the crowds. And yet at the same time, he didn't entrust himself into them. John chapter 6 verse 15 tells us that Jesus did not entrust himself to the crowds that wanted to make him king. Why? The answer is there in that verse. Because he knew what was in their hearts. The same is true today. Not everyone is entitled. Listen, you got to hear me in this. Not everyone is entitled to the deepest places of your heart. Not everyone is trustworthy with the deepest places of your heart. Jesus reserved those deepest revelations about who he is, not for the masses, but for his friends. For his friends. 
We are to be loving to all, but particular in our love to a few. We can't love the crowds in the same way that we love our friends. Even Jesus had to withdraw from the crowds to care for his friends and to nurture his relationship with his father, with his family, and with his friends. So Jesus loved the crowds, but he did not treat them at the same level of depth and intimacy as he did his friends, his family of origin, or his father, or his bride. And lastly, the world. Absolutely, Jesus loves the world. There is no doubt about his love for the world. After the resurrection, as a matter of fact, Jesus gave explicit instructions to the disciples that they were to go out into all of the world, right? And preach the gospel, the good news, and proclaim to everyone what Jesus had done. His instructions were to love them enough to speak the truth, to tell them the gospel, and to make disciples. He cares for the world. But the way in which the world was to know Jesus is different than what we might think. He cares for the world, that's absolutely true. But the way in which the world was to know that the disciples were sent by Jesus was by their love for who? You guys remember? The world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. For one another. In other words, there is a priority, right? The way that the church loves the church is different than the way that it loves the world. And our unique love for one another is a part of what draws the world in. Our unique care for the body of Christ is a a demonstration of what it means to belong to the family of God. So yes, Jesus loved the world. In fact, as he sends the disciples into the world, he says that this love that they have for one another was one of the most radical things that he would use. I mean, think about it. Think about what is written in the book of Acts, right? These people get lit on fire, literally, with the Holy Spirit. They begin speaking in all these unknown languages, and pretty soon they're all gathered together, and they're meeting every day of the week. It wasn't just a Sunday thing. It was like they're hanging out every opportunity that they get. And, and because some of them were there for Pentecost, they had traveled from afar and they didn't have a place to land. And so what people did who were believers who had, who had been ignited by the love of the Holy Spirit is they, they began to open up their homes and sell their possessions and they shared everything in their household with one another and they began to radically love each other. And the rest of Jerusalem was looking in going, what is going on over there? And the gospel spread within the first few chapters of the book of Acts. The church goes from 120 in an upper room to 5,000 people. Why? The preaching of the gospel and the demonstration of it through their love for one another. It stood out in a world of me monsters who care first and most about themselves. Here we see that Jesus loves the world and made provision for it to be saved through the people that live with their relationships rightly prioritized. 
the demonstration of their ordered life helps the world to see clearly the love of God being demonstrated through them. And so we see that Jesus prioritized his relationships. Allow me to illustrate this point by using a picture of how God instructed the, the temple and the tabernacle to be built in the Old Testament. Here we have this diagram of the temple. You can see this is Herod's temple. I, I've taken that from the ESV. And uh, it, it's one of the, the most grandiose versions of the temple that was ever made. Herod's temple uh, was started, I think, 70 uh, BC. No, I, I might be wrong on that. I know that it ended around 64 AD, so like 100 years to build it, right? And that temple, that place of worship, had different courtyards, different places. There, there you can see, outlined in the blue, the Gentiles' courtyard. That was as far as Gentiles could come. People who were not a part of the covenant people of God were only allowed to approach to God's presence so far. Next is the women's courtyard. After that, the priest's courtyard. After that, the holy place. And only select priests who could go into the holy place. And after that, the holiest of holies. So here's the thing. Not everybody could go into holiest of holies. There was this sort of filtering system before you could approach God. It was like the, the Gentiles could only come so far. If you weren't a part of God's covenant people, you could only get so far. And then, on top of that, you had the women's courtyard. And the priesthood could only come so far. And then on top of that, only certain priests, by lottery, could come in to the holy place. And then on top of that, only the high priest on one day out of the year could come into the holiest of holies. There were filters to how close you could get to God. But in the life of Jesus, we see that he also had layers. There, were, there was the world. There was the masses. There was his friends, his disciples, who he labored in ministry with. Then there were his deep friendships among the disciples, and there was his relationship with his father. He had gates and barriers that did not give access to everybody to come in. He limited, he narrowed those relationships. There were different gates by which people were filtered out. Not everyone had access to Jesus in the same way. I, 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 I love, as I was talking with Jeff about this today, I love the analogy that he used. He talked about how, um, how there's some people that you, you'll, you'll meet in the neighborhood, right? You're like, oh, yeah, hey, nice to meet you, but you're never coming over, <laughs> right? And then there's some people you're okay with meeting them at the fence, Right? Hey, neighbor, how you doing? We can talk here, but you're not welcome on my property. <laughs> then there's some people you meet at the door. And then there's some people you allow in the living room. Guys, not everybody should have access to the living room of your heart. It is good and it is godly and it is right for you to set limits to relationships. So we see... Jesus prioritized his relationships. 
Not only that, but Jesus pursued the deepest relationships. He pursued through time. Jesus spent time with his disciples. And the time he spent with them was meaningful. In fact, this time with the disciples was so radically effective in their lives. It so radically shaped their love for him that they would each go on to lay down their lives for the sake of Jesus long after he was gone. It was so radical that that the epistles in the New Testament are packed full of the disciples, the apostles, anticipating that moment where they will once again be reunited in eternity, in unending time with their friend, with Jesus. They lived in that hope and anticipation of it. Jesus pursued the deepest relationships, pursuing through time, pursuing through communication. John 15 is a great example of it. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then check this out, verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I commanded you so that you'll love one another. Jesus defined the relationship for them. He said, you guys, you're not my servants. You're not just my ministry partners. You're my friends. He, he talked to them about their friendship. He let them know, you guys are on the inside. You're you're not out here on the front porch. You're in the living room. Everything that God the Father has given me, I also give to you. I share with you the deepest parts of my heart and who I am. He pursued through communication. He told them about his love for them. He let them know that they had access to his heart. He communicated. He pursued not only through time and through communication, but he pursued through conflict. Through conflict. Listen, no good friendship worth having is free from conflict or drama. If you think out there that there's some perfect friend somewhere that you're going to always get along with and everything's just going to be peachy keen all the time and you guys will just always love each other, you are fooling yourself. I, I, how many of you guys thought that that would happen in marriage, right? And we would be like free from conflict and, and, and everything would just be awesome. We would just be best friends. I'm, I'm like, oh yeah, she's going to love hunting. <laughs> she's going to love like gutting a deer. It's going to be so awesome. It'll be so romantic, you know. Maybe we could do like that, that pottery scene with a deer skinning knife, you know, from, from that movie. It'll be awesome, No, it didn't turn out that way, right? Why? She just took two sinners and and shoved them together. There's twice the sin that there was. Friendships are the same way. Your friends will fail you. They will sin against you. They'll say things that hurt you. That will happen without a doubt throughout the course of your life again and again. They will wound you, and sometimes they will wound you for your own good. Because you need to be wounded. Faithful, 
are the ones of a friend. See, we have to pursue one another in conflict. If a friendship is worth having, it's worth working at and working through things. Jesus had lots of conflict with his disciples. <laughs> He's constantly arguing with them. Sometimes he, they're arguing about stupid stuff, like in Mark chapter 10, where they're like, hey, um, would, would you put one of us on the right hand, one of on the left? Which one of us is the greatest? And they're arguing amongst each other. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And Jesus is like, seriously? Have I been with you so long that you don't, you don't get this yet? There was conflict. One time he, he grabs Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. How would you like that coming out of the mouth of the Savior? There was conflict. It was difficult. One of his friends would betray him and sell him out for 30 pieces of silver and get him crucified. And yet at the same time, that same friend who came in in the moment of betrayal came up to betray him with a kiss. Jesus said, friend. Oh, that's a powerful word. Friend, do you betray me with a kiss? Jesus continued to love Judas in the midst of that. Jesus rebukes Peter. He rebukes his disciples continuously. They tried rebuking him, but he was right. <laughs> they pursued through conflict. They pursued through affection. Turn with me. Just, this is a, such a good one. John chapter 13. Just flip over there real quick. John 13. Pursued through affection. Verse 1 of chapter 13. You guys know what's about to happen. Jesus is about to wash the disciples' feet. In verse 1, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father. Check this out. Ready? Are you listening? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now he's going to demonstrate this. Watch what he does. During the supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, made himself look like a house slave. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he served and acted as a slave to his disciples. He pursued through affection. Jesus was betrayed with a kiss. The Bible tells us that there was a moment where they were having dinner and John, the apostle, was laying on the chest of Jesus. There was this affection. There was this, this love and care for one another. There was these acts of service. He pursued through affection. He pursued through service. Verse 1 says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The disciples knew that Jesus loved them. They knew his motivation. And then he pursues through service. Jesus cared for making sure that the disciples were growing, that they were learning, that they were fed. Remember, who took the 12 baskets of leftovers? Who took that? The disciples did, right? He cared for them made sure that they were getting sleep, 
There's one point where Jesus is laboring in prayer and he comes back to his disciples. He sees them sleeping there. He goes, sleep on now, rest up. Conflict is coming. He cared for their sorrows. He cared for the hurts. He served and loved these disciples to the uttermost. And why did he do that? Let's skip down just a few verses here. Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord. Why did he wash the disciples' feet? He, he tells us, verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord. And you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash whose? One another's feet. Now, obviously, we apply this to the whole of the church. That's kind of the traditional understanding. But to these disciples, who did he mean? The other disciples. Let this friendship continue. Keep pursuing this. Keep serving each other. I've showed you how to do this. The way that I've served you is the way that I want you to serve one another. Make yourselves slaves for the other. Love each other in that way. In the book of Acts, it demonstrates that the disciples were changed by the relationship that they had with Jesus and that they laid down their lives for the sake of ministering to others and for the sake of serving others and continuing to bring the gospel to bear in the world. I remember early on in uh, my relationship with the Lord and in my ministry experience, I was a boundaryless young man because I had a false understanding of how this worked out. I thought that the goal for me was just to love everybody as deeply as I possibly could. And as a result, you know, like we, we started a church in our home in Cave Junction, which, have you driven through Cave Junction? Have you tried to stop there ever? Maybe at Taylor's Sausage, or maybe I got one of you passed through and, and, and stopped at the Dairy Queen or the Pizza Deli. Have you, have you seen that place? Okay. And here's what happened. We're planting a church. My understanding of loving people is give everybody access to everything. And people would come into our home. We had like 30-something people coming into our home to meet for our church that we were planting. And they would come, and we were super poor. I was living on about $600 a month to $800 a month, depending upon whether or not I could find work. We're on food stamps. We're just, you know, doing everything. I'm working, cutting firewood, whatever I can do to make things work. And then people would come in, these total strangers with no boundaries themselves, and they would eat all of our food. And, I, and I'm like, God will provide, baby. Everything's awesome. Praise the Lord. She's like, What? <laughs> And that, that same pattern continued on for years and years. I didn't know how to set limits and how to establish boundaries. And as a result, I had a hard time saying no to people because it felt to me like if I'm saying no to somebody, I'm somehow hurting them or doing something wrong and, I, and, I'm, and I'm not acting as Jesus would act. And then a pastor friend of mine gave me an analogy that has stuck with me. It's been so helpful. He said, I want you to imagine a pyramid sort of inverted, a triangle sort of inverted and on its point. And up here at the top is, this, is the widest layer. And that is the people that you relate to on the basis of humanity. Like you suck oxygen and I suck oxygen. We're probably never going to be homies, but I can relate to you as a person. 
You're a human, I'm a human. Okay? The, the next layer down is similarity. Maybe we share the same language or the same cultural background and, 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 and communication happens at an easier level. Not only can I just have compassion on them because they're made in the image of God, but I also share some commonality with them, some similarity with them. We share the same language or culture. And so I can relate to them on a, on a different level of connection. And then the next one is commonality. That is, we share a common occupation or interest. We both like football or we, we both love to fish or the outdoors or maybe we're really into, you know, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I, I don't know. Whatever your thing is, right? <laughs> Whatever it is, board games or stuff. We share a common occupation or interest, and as a result, we can relate to one another on the basis of these shared interests. Next is affinity. We're friends. I would call you my friend. We love each other. That's the next layer down of, of, of closeness, of access to my heart. I actually am committed to you in a way differently than I would somebody that I, I know likes fly fishing or likes board games or certain movies or whatever. And then the last layer is intimacy. We share friendship and deep spiritual relationship. It's a deep spiritual fellowship. See, here's the thing. There are friends, and we can have a variety of friends, but the deepest type of friendship and connection is in the Lord, right? That's the apex of friendship, where you can share body, soul, and spirit, all that you are with another person. You can hug them, you can talk about Jesus, you can talk about conviction and share sin and deal with the deep things of your heart, and they'll give you wise counsel, and you can trust the things that they say, and you can trust the heart for you, that deep Fellowship in the Lord is, is the, the tip. It's the highest point of friendship. Now, here was the problem for me as a young man. I thought the goal was to get everybody up at this top layer down into the bottom layer. But that's not the goal. That's impossible for me to do. I reserve that bottom layer for those that I can share the deepest part of my heart with. And here's the beauty of it. When you get this, when you understand this, you can rest in the layer of relationship that you're able to have with people. You can say, hey, listen, we're never going to be friends, ever, ever. But I, I, I am compassionate towards your suffering. I understand your heart, and you have value because you're made in the image of God, and I can love you at that level. It's not my goal to make you my best friend but I can love you up here on the basis of humanity or on the basis of commonality, on the basis of, of, of affinity and our affection or in deep, true, intimate friendship, fellowship, the kind of stuff that the Bible talks about that we should have with a select few. So that's powerful when you grab that. It allows you to order the friendships in your life and go, what do I need to accept and what do I need to reject? And is it okay that I keep some people at a distance? Yes. Let me just tell you this. Yes, it's okay that you keep people at a distance. 
reserve the best parts of you for the people who deserve it. Keep it there. Lastly, Jesus protected his vital relationships. And I'm going to cruise here because I want to make sure that I honor our time commitment here. Jesus protected his most vital relationships. He protected them from invasion. Listen, Jesus withdrew from the crowds when he needed to. He took retreats with his disciples to foster friendship and deep connection with them. He never let the multitudes dictate his schedule. A lot of times they were always pulling at him. Hey, come over here. And he's like, it's not my mission to go over that. That's not what I've been called to. And we go to a different place. He guarded the vital relationships from being overran. John 6 tells us a story about Jesus making bread for a giant crowd. And, and, and then they wake up and he's gone. Right? He's on the other side of the lake. So they, they, they hoof it around the edge of the lake and come around to the other side of the lake. And they're like, hey, we woke up and your boat was gone. We were wondering, can we get some more of that bread? And Jesus is like, eh, you don't really like me as a teacher or want to follow in my teaching. Well, you just want more bread. I know what you're after. You're just trying to manipulate some more bread out of me. And then they're like, okay, well, you know, that's not really our intention, but if, you know, if you want to prove that you're a prophet from God, then you could do a miracle. Anybody got any miracles that Jesus could do? Oh, I know. How about Moses sent some, you know, God allowed Moses to get bread from heaven, some manna. Maybe you could make some bread. <laughs> that would be a good miracle. And Jesus is like, no. I'm not going to do that for you. Matter of fact, I'm going to make it really, really difficult for you. You ready? I'm the bread from heaven. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. That's a pretty hard line, don't you think? Think that filtered a few people off? Try the entire crowd. They all left. Then he turned to his disciples and said, what about you guys? Are you going to leave? And they said to him, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. You see, his friends, his friends knew, right? His friends knew it. So he protected those friendships from invasion. He guarded them. He kept them from being invaded. And he didn't let the crowds dictate his schedule. He guarded his time for the vital relationships. And he protected them from pollution. Listen, listen, Jesus spent his entire ministry warning the disciples about the things that would harm their relationship with him and with God. From the threat of religion, what he called the leaven of the Pharisees, to the lack of purpose that kept the unjust steward from utilizing the talents that the master had given him. All of that instruction was for the disciples to guard their relationship with him and with the Father. He protected them from pollution. He warned them about coming temptation. Remember how he told Peter, hey, it's coming. Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I want you to know, I've prayed for you. When this whole thing is over, I want you to strengthen the brothers. You're going to get through this because I have prayed for you. We're going to use this, your weakness, your failing. He protected them from pollution. Jesus fought to keep the disciples from polluting their relationship with him. Listen, a friendship is only as good as your willingness to lovingly engage with somebody and fight for their holiness. 
to fight for their right relationship with God and the right relationship, right relationship and ordered relationships around them. That means coming to that sister who's playing with fire and, and, and doing things that, that bring her marriage into a danger zone and saying, sister, stop. Don't you know what you're doing? It's going to hurt you and the people that you love. Knock it off. It means coming to that brother and rebuking him and calling him out. I refuse to let this pollute our friendship. Let's fight for what's true and honest here. And lastly, he protected with his passion. Listen. The passion of Christ, his suffering on the cross, was a display of the great lengths to which Jesus would suffer for those he loves. He protected them with his passion. He took their sin, their burdens. He died with it and cared for them to the very end and beyond. Guys, the goal of following Jesus and loving others is to learn to have relationships like Jesus. Amen? Father, help us. Examine our hearts. Examine our lives, Lord, by your Spirit. Help us to identify areas where we're out of step with your will and your word and cause us to live following in the footsteps of our teacher, our supreme example, the lover of our souls, Jesus Christ. And I ask this, that you might be glorified in us and in our love for one another. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. God bless you guys. God bless you guys. Next week, we're gonna be learning about how to fight like Jesus. So don't miss out on that opportunity. Uh, we'll see you next week.